As we just heard, Rosita, the bilingual Muppet, has given voice to an often underrepresented demographic in America. In fact, the turquoise monster is a perfect example of one of the enduring themes of Sesame Street, diversity. The show itself was established to appeal to a diverse audience and address deep-seated issues like poverty and racial injustice. Being a historian of Sesame Street is really being an historian of all kinds of different things. Um, it's being an historian of social justice. It's being a historian of race in America. It's being a historian of media and popular culture. Sesame Street provides this wonderful lens through which we can examine all sorts of different trends that are happening in American history. That's Catherine Ostrovsky. When Sesame Street first aired in 1969, she says it was an immediate hit. But while the show was experiencing early success, the country was grappling with civil rights and the Vietnam War. So I asked Catherine why Sesame Street chose to promote diversity during this turbulent time in American history. Well, you're right. There's a lot of things going on in 1969. And they were actually planning the show for a couple of years prior to that. So through 1967 and 68, they are talking about what can we do to fix some of the problems in society? What can we do to address some of these major issues that we have as a country? And they were particularly interested in addressing poverty and racial intolerance. In 1967, you have all those urban uprisings. In 1968, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King. These are things that are on everybody's mind. So when they start the show, they plan the curriculum around cognitive goals, around things that you would think of as basically like academic. And those, however, are just tools. They're means to an end. Um, they're thinking about how are we going to help kids feel comfortable in school and feel comfortable learning, and particularly how we're going to help inner-city African-American kids. And Sesame Street consciously had a racially integrated cast. The first four cast members, the hosts of the show, were Gordon and Susan, an African-American couple, and Bob and Mr. Hooper, two white guys who lived in the neighborhood, too. And how did conceptions of diversity change over time? How were they reflected in the show? Well, once you get to the 1970s, there are a lot of different groups who are looking at what happened with the African-American civil rights movement and saying, we should learn some lessons from that and work towards social justice for our communities, too. Right. So you've got uh, the women's movement, you've got Latino civil rights and pride movements, you've got the American Indian movement, and uh, you've got disability rights activists beginning to work toward laws helping their community. And how, how did that show up on the screen? Sesame Street was a show on public broadcasting. And always conceived of itself as a show for the public. Because of that, the public understood this as their show. The public understood that this was a show that they could be a part of. So audience members, people who were activists 
in other areas of society, started looking at Sesame Street and saying, well, why can't somebody like us be mm -hmm. on that show too? And Sesame Street listened to them. So they looked to people on their staff, people in the cast, and audience members who are writing in to their suggestions about how to make the show more reflective of what American society really was and what American society should be. You're working on a podcast with co-host Sherman Dorn about Sesame Street, and I understand that we have a clip queued up here. I'd like you to set it up for us. What are we going to hear? Our podcast is called Everything Happens Here, Half a Century of Sesame Street. And we are exploring all the things that people have learned from Sesame Street over the years beyond the alphabet and numbers. We're going to talk to scholars who have studied Sesame Street as well as the people who actually were involved in working on Sesame Street and creating it. And tell me a little bit about Emily Pearl Kingsley. Emily Pearl Kingsley was a writer on Sesame Street for 45 years. So she started in season two uh, in 1970, and disability issues became very important to her personally outside of the show. And she realized that working on a show like Sesame Street was an opportunity for her to bring these issues to a broad audience so we're going to hear her talk about how she wrote for a deaf character played by deaf actress Linda Bove and how she wrote for her own son, Jason, who had Down syndrome and was featured on the show as well. In season two, I was assigned to go out and check out a thing called the Little Theater of the Deaf. I had to go all the way out on Long Island to where they were performing. And I was absolutely enchanted with them. They're imaginative and creative and, and gave the audience a simultaneous experience that hearing people and non-hearing people would both be experiencing the same kind of thing. Because the signing and the not signing was going on at the same time. It was fascinating. and. So I came back from checking these people out. I said, they're wonderful, and they, we really need to have them on the show. And I started writing segments for them. And they had fabulous response, fabulous. In the process of writing the stuff for the Little Theater of the Deaf, I decided I should learn to, to sign. So I started socializing with these people, and we would get together on Wednesday nights, and we would, you know, communicate. We would, we would play games. We would just chat and so on. And um, it was a very, very uh, opening up experience for me because in addition to learning to sign and having the, all these new friends, I was getting a little politicized about disability issues. And it was, it was interesting to be able to see things from their point of view, which I had never been exposed to before. And... Um, then Linda Bove came, and Linda was, you know, a character who became a regular. She lived on the street. She was deaf, and not only were we learning some sign language with Linda, but we did segments with Linda on 
How do you wake up in the morning? What kind of an alarm clock do you use if you can't hear? You know, how do you know when somebody's ringing your doorbell? And so we were answering kids' real questions uh, right there on the show. And I don't think there was any show up to that time that had, you know, dealt with that kind of subject matter right straight head on, asking questions and answering them. Plus, showing that Linda was a full-fledged, ordinary member of the community. She just lived there. She was the librarian. She had a dog. She was just a person who happened to live there. And then every once in a while, you would deal with a deaf issue. When Emily started writing for the show in 1970, she said she wasn't thinking about disability as a part of diversity. Would that have been normal in 1970? It would have been entirely normal for adults in 1970 who, in most cases, would not have grown up around peers and classmates and gone to school with individuals who were labeled as having disabilities, it would have been a mostly new experience to see individuals with disabilities on television. So Linda's an example of an adult character who appeared on the show and represented people with disabilities. What about children with disabilities on the show? Well, the first child with a disability to be featured on Sesame Street was Jason Kingsley, Emily's son. In 1974, I had my son Jason, who was born with Down syndrome. And that was a very shocking experience, to say the least. Personally, we were given very, very horrible advice from, from the obstetrician. But this was the, um, the advice of the day. You were told when the baby like this was born that you did not have to bring the baby home if you didn't want to. The baby could be placed in a nice, clean institution, and you could go home and tell your family that the baby had died in childbirth because the, the uh, expectation was that this child would never accomplish anything. But when he was about three, he was starting to read. And he was putting letters together, letters, scrabble tiles he was putting together and making little words. It was blowing our minds. He was doing all this stuff that the doctors had said was impossible by definition, you know. I realized I had this this venue, this format, not really at my disposal, but it was a possibility. And I went to the producers and I said, look, I've got this three-year-old kid with Down syndrome who's starting to read. Can we put him on the show? Can we show people that kids with this kind of a disability can learn more than anybody thought? And they said, sure, let's try it. It wasn't until 1975 that there was a federal law requiring that public schools accept all children, regardless of the nature or degree of disability, that public schools around the country were required to consider and start planning for the education of children with learning disabilities, with Down syndrome and other developmental disabilities, in many cases where children with disabilities were educated in public schools, they were segregated in separate classrooms, in separate schools. Starting in the late 1970s, schools and parents and classmates faced an entirely new world 
And so the representation of individuals with disabilities on a television show was probably the first exposure on media to the concept of disability for young children. We put Jason on the show, and we did a whole bunch of short little segments with him that are so fabulous. And he was doing letter identification, and you know, and he was making little words together, and he was so cute. So we put them on the show, and the the response was absolutely phenomenal. The the mail that we got just blew us away. It was amazing. People would say. I have a kid like that, and I didn't know that these kids were capable of learning anything. I'm going to work harder with my kid. And people have said, I've never even seen a child with this kind of condition on, on any show ever. It's so wonderful just to see him there, just having a regular life. And so that's what uh, inspired me to start thinking about, well, if we could do Down syndrome, why can't we do other things. Why can't we do wheelchair stuff? Why can't we do cerebral palsy? Why can't we do spina bifida? Why can't we do um, helmets and, and braces and crutches and all kinds of stuff? And that's what sort of set me off in my, my career of, of advocacy on the show. If children with disabilities are really only being included in classrooms in the late 1970s, it's really early for Sesame Street to be including those children in their sort of televised classroom of the air nationwide in the early 70s. My question for someone who wrote for the show for 45 years and shaped it in so many different ways, what in the end was her view of what the show was about? I did a show once called The furry little red monster parade and the idea of that show is sort of like a condensation of what Sesame Street's all about Elmo wants to make a parade and he's banging his drum and he's saying come you know come one come all you know hooray hooray it's the furry little red monster parade and then Zoe says oh can I watch with you and sure here's the song and she says wait a minute I'm not red I'm orange. So Elmo says, well, we'll change the song. We'll make it hooray for the furry little red and orange monster parade. And then somebody else comes along who wants to join in the parade who's not a monster, you know, or who's not little, you know. And each time the, the song changes to accommodate the different people. And then at the end, it turns out that, you know, it's just become unwieldy. It's just ridiculous to be singing this stupid song that's getting longer and longer. So they finally, at the end, change it to hooray for the anybody who likes to be in a parade. Parade. So <laughs> um, the idea being that the message that it's okay to be whoever you are. It's gotta be okay to be whoever you are. Catherine Ostrowski is a Sesame Street scholar and independent historian. Her forthcoming podcast is called Everything Happens Here, Half a Century of Sesame Street. To listen, you'll find a link on our website at www.backstoryradio.org. <laughs>